I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. All right, good morning and welcome everybody. I'd like to welcome you today to our strategic farming field notes session. Uh, these sessions are brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension and also um, support from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. And we'd like to welcome you today to our session on is corn rootworm getting your corn down? So uh, I'm Liz Stahl. I'm a regional extension educator in crops out of the Worthington Regional Extension Office. I'll be moderating today. And we welcome Bruce Potter. He's our IPM specialist out of the Southwest Research and Outreach Center by Lamberton. And also Dr. Fei Yang. He's our new uh, extension corn entomologist. So we're happy to have him on board as well too and learn more about what he's doing uh, and seeing as well. So uh, anyway, with that, we'll just kind of jump right in. We did get some questions earlier on uh, with the registration and uh, that do relate to our topic to uh, today. So again, we're going to focus on corn rootworm, but we'll hit other pests if we have some time. But basically, you know, just take a step back before we dive really into the details. Um, could you just explain, you know, maybe we'll start with you, Bruce, here just talking about, you know, what's a corn rootworm's life cycle, you know, through the stages? What are things that we got to worry about? When can we actually control these pests and, and so forth? But again, just kind of give us a little basic so we're all on the same page here. Well, sure, uh, Liz. To start, to start with, I mean, at this time of year, basically, uh, for the most part, your root, all your rootworm management is get directed towards the following following crop, corn crops. Um, right now, the beetles are mating, they're, they're laying eggs, rather. They're, uh, those eggs will diapause or uh, they have to rest over the winter. Um, they'll hatch in the spring. The larvae hatch usually the beginning of June, first week of June or so in this part of the world. Uh, they'll feed for a few weeks. They'll pupate, and then the beetles will start coming out in uh, in mid mid to late July. Um, beetle emergence is still happening, so it's not like all the all the beetles uh, eggs hatch at the same time and beetles emerge at the same time. It's a long extended period that ties into scouting. And the other thing that varies between, uh, we've got two species we're dealing with in Minnesota, northern corn rootworm and western corn rootworm. And the difference between the two species is that northern corn rootworm have evolved a way to get around a crop rotation. And they simply do that by uh, delaying part of that population, delaying, delaying egg hatch for another winter, sometimes uh, three, four winters. And that'll put them back into either you get around a environmental stress that way, or you can get around a, a, a pretty short uh, corn soybean rotation with that egg hatch strategy. Okay, good. Yeah, thanks for that. And and then you know, of course, people wonder, you know, what are key ways to control corn rootworm? And I don't know if if you want to take that, maybe just kind of think about what are some traditional methods people use to control, or what have we been doing, and but where are we seeing the holes? with this as well. Yeah, I think right now the there's several strategies used for like management of like a corn rootworm is and um, it depends on 
And I think the first one, like we can use crop rotation, that's the best strategy and the cheapest strategy to manage corn rootworm, like a corn and soybean rotation. And the second, you can use like uh, insecticides, liquid granular. I think in low pressure, probably liquid insects can work a little bit better, but in high pressure, granular insecticides would be better. And, the, and another sort of important way to manage is using BT traits. And, but, but, but right now, most of the Western and the Northern root worm have developed resistance to some of the BT traits. So that's a major concern. I think the industry is developing some new BT traits in the near future that should help a lot. So I think, Bruce, do you have anything to add on? No, I think the, uh, the good news is that, well, it's not good news, but Western corn rootworms, uh, uh, the traits, uh, rootworm traits started, uh, started in about 2005. And by 2009, we started to see resistant uh, Western corn rootworms in Southern Minnesota. Uh, that's that's a uh, pretty short uh, duration for that trait to be completely effective. Um, I think it also says speaks to that those rootworm population or genetics are are really um, pretty diverse. They've got a lot of ways to get around resistance. I talked about the northerns and crop rotation resistance, uh, uh, westerns and and BT resistance uh, in Nebraska. They've got some perethroid resistant uh, beetles now or uh, rootworm, rootworms now. Um, so I think I think the good news is out of this whole thing is that for the most part we're getting reports of extended diapause or northern corn rootworm pressure. For the most part, the BTs seem to be working, but uh, um, there has been resistance documented in in North Dakota. We've had seen some resistant populations in Minnesota, and and I think that's what we're really uh, really trying to keep our eye on right now is. Um, are our northerns getting around the BTs as well as 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 the westerns? Yeah, that's yeah. Oh. oh, go yeah, ahead, I, yeah. Okay, yeah, I have something to like add. Like, uh, if your price is low for the something like uh, for your populations for root worm, I think it's not necessary to if if it's not necessary to use B, BT traits, just avoid. So in this way, we can help delay like resistance to BT traits and protect the technology for the future. Yeah, well, and you know that kind of brings up a question too. It's like why why do we see these shifting? Do you think with you know Western corn rootworms? It seems like for a while there that those populations were a lot higher, but now you're saying we're seeing more extended diapause, which typically is with with the northern corn rootworms, right? So, you know, what's driving these shifts in what we're seeing out in the field? Like it seems are the populations of northern corn rootworm are they going up now, uh, relating to these issues more? Um, no, I think that's exactly right. The extended diapause trait has always been there, um, but when those northern populations are low, you you don't notice it. Um, when the northern populations are higher, it's not uh, it's not the whole population that has the trait. At least I don't know of any cases where that's true. Uh, maybe as high as fifty percent or around fifty percent will will display the extended diapause trait, but. If you don't have uh, if you don't have the northern populations out there, um, you won't see the extended diapause. And now, as these northerns have uh, been increasing over the last few years, uh, we're starting to see the extended diapause pop up, and we're seeing it pop up in in new areas. But uh, as far as the BT resistance, insecticide resistance, those sorts of things, I mean, the rootworms are 
the rootworms are basically responding to what we're doing to them. I mean, they're adapting to our management strategy. So um, that's why we kind of try to need to use a lot of tools and and uh, be flexible. And, and uh, uh, like Faye mentioned, um, if you don't have a problem, leave it alone. Well, that, that's a good point, you know, because again, I know a lot of people have been just planting BT hybrids, for example, to manage corn rootworm, but then some people have been layering insecticides. You know, are they, are these people, are they still seeing, are we still seeing lodging in these kind of fields? Is that what you're saying? And we're seeing some of that pop up as well. And and should we be using, you know, an insecticide at planting when we plant a BT hybrid, uh, no matter what, to, to manage this? I don't know who wants to tackle that question first, but again, management's always the key question of what, what we can do to manage this pest. Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll try to tackle it first. Faye, maybe uh, you can you can uh, yeah, chime in at the end here. But mm -hmm. um, the the problems for both northerns and westerns, I think those populations tend to increase in continuous corn. Uh, extended diapause northerns are not. Uh, westerns we don't have uh, uh, the. Uh, the, the uh, rootworms they do in the eastern corn belt that have lost their affinity to lay eggs in corn, so they'll lay eggs in soybeans and they get around to rotation that way. Uh, as far as rotation resistant rootworms in Minnesota, as far as we know, it's only the northerns. Uh, but there, but the, but those, but those uh, continuous cornfields are ideal environments for both species. The populations build up, um, and and resistance develops in those fields as well. Uh, we do have some uh, some of these really high western corn rootworm population fields um, that have adapted to BT or resistant to BT. Um, there, there you do need a insecticide to help keep things going. Um, some of these fields are bad enough that really the smart thing to do is to rotate out of corn for a year. It gets a little trickier with the northerns and extended diapause. You got to be be aware of what's going on, but uh, definitely rotating out of corn for a year is going to knock those westerns back and kind of reset the clock in those fields. Yeah, that's correct. And according to some studies, like if you do planting continuous corn in the field, if you have two species, western and corn rootworm and northern corn rootworm in a location, normally western corn rootworm will dominate will be the dominant species and they will replace and have some competitive advantage over, over the northern rootworm. So in a field, the western rootworm should be the dominant species. And if you use curb rotation, you can kill them for, for, for almost one year. And the next year you get back to corn, that will be better. So, you know, if a person has been doing continuous corn or even there haven't been in, in rotated corn, um, how would they get a feel for their populations right now out in the field? What would you recommend that people do to, to see if they're having an issue out there? Obviously scouting, but okay, what would, what would that scouting entail that you would recommend uh, to be checking for, you know, see if they have an issue or not? Yeah, you're, well, you're you're definitely going to have to be in the field to know if you've got a problem or not, and you're going to definitely have to get into the field, not just on the edge. If you're on the just scouting the edge of a cornfield, that's where beetles move in and out, and those populations tend to be a lot higher there. You might they might be high on the first few rows, and once you get inside the fields, populations may be low. So scout the field thoroughly. 
there's two ways basically you can do it. One is to go into the field and do whole plant counts. Uh, walk through the field, you look at uh, two plants, you check for beetles in there, check around the ears, and then check, pull the silks back. Uh, there's a, a link in the chat, chat for uh, some information on scouting. Uh, the, but the whole concept is to scout the field thoroughly. You don't have to waste a lot of time and this whether you're doing whole plants counts or you're hanging sticky traps out in the field it's getting the field covered and scouting long enough in the season uh, but if you walk into a field and you've got beetles all over the place you really don't have to spend a lot more time there uh, you're, you know you're going to have to do some management uh, a lot of people are using the yellow sticky traps now, but I'm going to caution them because the rootworm populations are variable even within a field. And Faye and I were looking at uh, roots, uh, uh, roots from uh, uh, some corn rootworm studies yesterday, and even from rep to rep, that population varied, and and that's because the egg laying and the beetles populations varied in that in that even that small uh, test area. So they're real variable. Putting one or two traps in the field is likely to give you uh, a completely wrong impression of what's out, what's out there. How many sticky traps do you think they should have out there? I mean, Faye, do you have any feel for that? Like how many, and, and realistically, because it takes time to do this, how often do you have to check these and, and so forth? Do you have a feel for how many that a person should put out in a field if they were going to put out sticky traps to monitor uh, for corn rootworm? So I can maybe answer that. Okay. So it depends on yeah. how much detail you want out of that. Uh, if you're just trying to find high risk fields, uh, you can probably get by four. Uh, some people try three, that's getting kind of iffy. And if you're on the bubble and you're in that area where you're not sure if you've got a rootworm problem or not, um, then you then you need uh, six to eight. And then and some studies Ken Osley's uh, lab did a, a few years back. It's uh, the northerns tend to need a few more traps to accurately assess the population. Um, but I think most guys are just trying to figure out which fields are at, at higher risk. So. Um, you don't have to spend too much time out there, but you do have to do it for a longer period of time. And, and uh, you know, it's it, we're talking about three, four weeks or so, because um, these beetles are either moving into the field um, if there's if they're late pollinating or, or later than other fields in the area, um, those sorts of things. Well, that's one question, too, that kind of brings up, you know, is what we're talking about, sticky traps. So we do have a question that popped up here, too. It deals with root pruning. So there again, do you recommend people uh, about digging roots? And, and uh, since it is a drier year, um, too, do you think there would be more severe root pruning or would it be less or is it going to have more of an impact? Um, either we want to tackle, tackle that question there and, and see um, you know, what, what impact is the dry conditions having on, on root pruning this year? Hey, do you want to answer that or? Uh, I think you can answer because you have like a more experience than me for the like dry conditions. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if it's dry out, um, the, you know, because there's, they're reducing the root system, 
Um, that impact on yield is going to be greater. The other thing that happens when it's dry is, especially if it's hot and dry, the roots don't regenerate as well. Part of that's a hybrid trait. But um, so the damage um, in dry conditions or the effect on yield in dry conditions is is usually worse. Uh, but the other side of that is that, you know, if it's dry and you don't have winds, um, you could have some pretty severe damage and it won't lodge. The other thing I want to point out is if you go into a field, you don't know if those beetles are coming into the field or leaving the field or if it's extended diapause or not, unless you look at those roots and, and uh, see if the, there's a lot of root injury in that field. So um, that's that's one of the that's one of the issues with uh, rootworm beetles is they're so especially the northerns are so darn mobile and they'll move back and forth between fields. Uh, and even out of fields and, and feed on flower pollen and that sort of thing and weed pollen. So on here, a, a question uh, also too that comes up a lot of times, you know, now we're starting to see in fields or volunteer corns popping up through the canopy and soybean fields. What impact does that have on corn rootworm populations too? Um, you know, again, at what point is it essentially that we're not rotating out of corn here. Um, again, we know that rotation can help overall with corn rootworm, but again, if we've got a lot of volunteer corn out there, you know, at some point it, it's really not gonna help us, right? Um, well, I mean, uh, as, uh, we did some work a few years back and, and uh, looked at both Northerns and Westerns and, you know, it doesn't really take that much volunteer corn relatively to pull beetles into the field to lay eggs. Uh, I think we're we uh, if I remember the numbers right, it's only like twenty five hundred plants per acre or so, where um, you could have egg laying in that field, and that's not hard to do, especially when we have uh, things like the those wind events that came through a couple years years ago, lodged a lot of corn, and uh, you know we had a lot of volunteer corn following it. Um, I don't think they're smart enough to to uh, think of this all on their own, but. You know, when you do have on the from the rootworm side, if you do have a lot of rootworm lodging, you have a hard time picking up some of that corn, and that creates more volunteer corn issues as well. So, um, volunteer corn is not good if it's out there since uh, till July. Um, you've got larval surviving, uh, and if it's out there pollinating uh, later than everything else towards the end of the year, then you get a lot of you get beetles moving in and laying eggs. Here's a question that did come in here too. Um, have you noticed any plant or cover crops which promote predators of corn rootworm? Have either of you noticed anything about that? Is there any impact uh, the having having more cover crops out there might have on on uh, populations of corn rootworm and pressure? I don't know, Faye. It, it's uh... The only, the only, I mean, the rootworms don't really have that many predators. There's some nematodes, that sort of thing. But what do you think about, uh, you know, if you've got a cover crop out there, keeping that soil, um, you know, minimizing bare soil? I don't know if that'd help on egg laying or not, but I don't think I've seen anything published about it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's no, no study about like uh, the predator for the cover crop on corn rootworm management. I think the I think the impact of the cover crop is going to be what that does to corn growth and root development, those sorts of moisture, those sorts of things. Yeah, like pro provide like more nutrition for the corn development. True, true. 
Um, and uh, related to that, a question that we did come in earlier uh, as well, they ask about beetle bombing. Um, so probably not your favorite, but if they do it, what's the best timing? <laughs> you know, because if they see a field, for example, with a lot of beetles out there. Well, a lot of people panic and, and uh, want to spray beetles because they think they're clipping their silks and the corn won't pollinate. And that's actually pretty rare. Um, and, and, you know, actually after that corn's pollinated, you can pull the husk back and shake the ears. And if the silks fall off of those, um, kernels, it's, they've been pollinated. Uh, but you know, a lot of that silk clap clipping actually happens after the pollination is all done. Um, so that's a whole, that's a whole separate reason for, for, uh, putting a uh, foliar insecticide on for adults. And, and for the most part, it's actually pretty rare where you where you have those kind of levels of, you know, five, six, seven, eight beetles per plant and your corn isn't pollinated yet and your silks are clipped within a half inch of the tip of the ear. Um, some guys can't rotate or ro won't rotate and um, they don't really have a good way to, to put insecticide on. So a lot of guys have tried to, uh, to resort to beetle bombing or spraying the adults to prevent egg laying. Um, the threshold is one beetle per plant, but a lot of guys are doing it early, uh, too early. Um, this, this control would go on, um, you know, after the silk clipping and pollination is done, you, for the most part. Um, you're talking about one beetle per plant. You want about 10% of those beetles to be females to be pregnant so you can see the swollen ab abdomen swollen with eggs and uh, uh, you're probably going to have to scout more than or uh, scout every 10 days or so for a while because like I said earlier those beetles don't all merge at the same time and they move in and out of field and your insecticide uh, residuals only so long so one beetle per plant 10 percent gravid females and then you know check the field in seven to ten days and keep doing that then you might have to you might have to uh put another foliar application on in fact usually that's the case here's here's one more question that came in uh earlier with registration as well too um so you talked about a lot of management again how how do we best prevent resistance and maintain the effectiveness of of the bt traits any overall guidance there that you would offer? Hey. Yeah, I think that I, as I mentioned before, like uh, using BT traits as necessary, if it's your project is low in your field, it's not necessary to use BT traits. So you, you can, first, you can avoid like a resistant problem in the future. And the second, it will save you a lot of money for buying those BT traits. And the second thing, if you, if you see any problem like earlier, you can use like uh, uh, other insecticides or different like uh, traits, different mechanisms to avoid uh, like uh, the insects develop resistance to one model of action. So if you use multiple model of actions that can slow insect resistance. And also I think right now, because of the problems of the West, especially for Western conroodworm, they have developed resistance to almost every BT traits in most of the locations. So in the future, I hope like industry can have some new and uh, we can have some new model of actions. And the one they, they are using right now is the INI plus with BT. And that can help when your insect pressure is low in the field. But if your insect pressure is high, because INI is working totally different compared to BT, 
they kill insects very slow. So it takes a little bit of time. Normally for BT, it can kill the insects one or two days. But for LNI, it takes about like uh, five, more than five days to kill the insects. Well, that relates straight to a question that just came in too. It says like, what are you seeing hearing about the new traits efficacy? So I'm assuming that they're talking about the RNAi technology. If you want to share a little bit about, you know, if people aren't that familiar with how that works, and uh, again, what what's kind of the efficacy of that that you're seeing compared to, you know, say the BT traits? Well, I mean, it it it's a it's a it's another mode of action, and it's a supplement to the BT. But as Faye mentioned, um, that BT has to be functioning to a certain extent because. Um, if the insects are resistant, the larvae are resistant to BT, they're able to feed, they can do quite a bit of root damage before the RNEI can kill, uh, can kill the, kill the larvae. Um, we have seen, I have seen some fields this summer where they've put these RNEI, uh, hybrids under extremely high rootworm pressure and there's problems. There's, uh, lodging, um, uh, a lot of root feeding and lodging. So, and I think the the seed companies will tell you too that if you've got really high pressure, that's um, not going to answer everything, but it will help under moderate and and lower pressure um, where you're dealing with BT resistance. So um, it's a it's a good it's a good uh, tool, but it's not bulletproof, just like any of the other tools aren't. And I think really, um, I'll just reemphasize that if if you want to help rootworms out. You just keep doing the same thing over and over again in the field and they'll figure a way around it pretty quickly. <laughs> true, true. And here's another question. Is there any non-BT resistance or tolerance out there? I'm assuming no, maybe. I don't, I don't maybe think, I don't think really, um, there's differences in hybrids and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think, you know, one thing that growers should be, can look at is, is, you know, the root system of those hybrids themselves, something that's got a larger root system, maybe regenerates, um, that'll help you out. And if you're, if you're in these high pressure situations and, and, or you're, you're worried about rootworms, that's, that's something I'd always look at, uh, right in the beginning is, you know, don't put, pick a small rooted hybrid. It just, it's just, it's just making your life just more difficult. And here's one more question that popped up, uh, saying, not sure if you mentioned this already, but you know what, northern corn rootworm being found in new areas of the state. Uh, are there any particular region and counties that appears to be heading into and, uh, you know, versus where they're regularly prevalent? Is there some more, are you seeing this? Yeah, where, where, where are you seeing the issues, I guess, the hottest well, issues? And it, it's real localized and there's no reason to, and it's and it's field, field, it's not every field in an area either. Um, and this problem is, been here in the early 80s it kind of disappeared as northern populations declined it came back in the early 2000s disappeared uh now it's coming back again um so there's pockets in south central minnesota and that martin county area is one little bit up into brown county uh, i've seen some fields in in extreme southwest minnesota uh, but it's not quite as big a hot spot um, but they're seeing up in douglas county and i think into otter tail a little bit um, some areas where they haven't seen extended diapause before. So um, they've had northern corn rootworm pressure up there before. And, and one thing I didn't mention is you go north because the eggs are more cold tolerant, you see more northern corn rootworms. 
Um, but even in southern Minnesota, at one time, the northerns were the dominant species. And uh, it's, it's fairly recent uh, since the westerns became more widespread down here. And I should note that you both have written a really great article that's available on the Minnesota Crop News. If people want more details on that, that has been posted online, it was posted earlier this week. There's a lot of great resources on our Extension Crops website. We will have those links uh, close to this recording as well, or you can find it on our Strategic Farming website for anybody listening to this recording. Um, I did want to ask you a quick fee. I know that you're also working with the European Corn Board. Do you have any uh, thoughts you wanted to uh, mention about that as well, too? Because we can't can't totally forget about that pest either. Yeah, like European Corn has been a historic insect pest here, but because of using the BT traits, it works very fantastic to targeting this species. But right now, I think two years ago uh, in Canada, they found some species of European Cambola showing resistance to all the CRY1 and the CRY2 BD proteins. And uh, I think uh, O'Hare State, they're like, working on some research. They found the resistance in Northeast US, showing some resistance of European Cambola to the CRY1 cry, cry and CRY2 BD proteins. So it is a high chance European Cambola populations will come back in Minnesota and showing resistance. And that's where cause big problem for us. So the only thing right now we wanted to understand and to do some survey, understand the survivability of these insects to the current BT technologies that will help us a lot for resistance management. So if you find any infestation of the European combo in your field, please let me know so I can I, I can go there and collect some populations and test it against the current BT traits. So that will help a lot for future research. All right, excellent. Thank you. And Bruce, I know you got like about one minute here. Anything you want to add about set time here, soybean aphids, spider mites who got dry conditions? Um, um, yeah, spider mites. Uh, um, we'll probably revise an older uh, crop uh, news article. Um, we're starting to get some calls where uh, in these drier areas on spider mites, there has been some treatment going on for a few weeks in little pockets. Um, we did get some rain in central Minnesota, and, and I think not so much rain, but if we can get some cooler temperatures and we can get some uh, um, leaf moisture, even that, even with heavy dews, and get that for a couple nights in a row, hopefully we can get some fungi going and knock those populations back. But uh, aphids are going to be moving around uh, the country here pretty quick uh, as, as soybeans quit growing vegetatively. So uh, both of those insects are... are uh, ones and insects both of those are something to scout for here in the in the next week or so all right and stay tuned because that will be something we certainly can address here on our uh, upcoming field notes sessions as that anything progresses there and also i'm sure you'll have stuff out on the minnesota crop news as well too but um again I'd like to thank our guests uh, dr fei yang and uh, also bruce potter today and all of you for attending our extension field notes session today and uh, also, of course, like to thank the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council for helping make uh, these sessions possible. Again, um, have a great rest of the day and I uh, hope to see you next week.